what I have for us this morning actually came out of my preparation for my ordination. Uh, I don't, I, I, I honestly cannot even remember what I said <laughs> last Sunday night. Um, and if, if I didn't say it, it took me, I, I addressed it a little bit, but it took me a long time to come to terms with being ordained for a number of reasons, and I, I shared some of them with you on Sunday. But in that wrestling, in that process of overcoming all of my excuses, <laughs> um, the Lord gave me this to give to you all because I think we all come to those places where we wrestle with the Lord. And we have excuses, and he calls us to things, and we're like, nope, no thank you, or I don't know about that. And so what I have for us this morning, it comes from that. It comes from that time of wrestling. And I feel like what the bulk of what God has for us this morning actually isn't a teaching this morning. It's a waiting and a listening and a responding to what the Holy Spirit has for us. And I do have something to share with you. Um, but most of what we need to do right now is sort of settle in our minds and our hearts that we're going to be pressing in this morning through some silence and through some waiting and hearing what the Lord has for us. And just to give you an example, nor in a normal sermon, I have about six pages worth of notes that I go through with the way that I write and do it. I have two and a half today. That's it. So either the Holy Spirit shows up and we do something or we go to lunch early. That's kind of the way of it this morning. Um, we need him. We need him. We need to wait on him. We need to press in. We need to encounter him and engage with him. And then we need to respond to what it is he has for us and what he says to us. And so let's kind of set our expectancy, if we will, on not going to lunch early, but on the Holy Spirit coming and revealing something to us. And go ahead and prepare our hearts now, and we can go to that first title slide, um, to say yes. God, we expect you to be here. We know you have things to say, and let's begin to prepare our hearts to say yes to whatever it is that he has for us. Um, you're going to need your Bibles this morning. We have a pretty large chunk of text to read together, larger than I've probably ever read um, in a sermon. So if you need a paper Bible, you can get one where I did, back on the table, where Alan get, got for me, back on the table back there. We're going to be in Exodus, or you can pull up your apps or whatever it is you've got. And we're going to go to Exodus 3. Let's pray before we get started again with this part. <laughs> Lord, we need to hear from you. We've already come to you in worship declaring you are welcome here, that we need your presence, we need your power. But Lord, we do. We confess it again. We need to encounter you. That, Lord, to do and live and be all that you call us to be in this life, we need you. We need your spirit. We need your equipping. So Holy Spirit, stir up again. Take us along in that wave with you to where we, our ears are tuned into your voice and we hear you and we discern you and where our hearts are ready to respond with a yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So where I'm going with this this morning 
is the story of Moses, part of the story of Moses. And, you know, I'd be surprised if any of us in this room didn't know who Moses was, right? I wouldn't ask you to admit it, but we all, we all know something about Moses, right? That either it's the story of him being put in the basket and sent down the river and picked up by the, the Pharaoh's daughter and being raised in the Pharaoh's household. And if anyone who's sen- seen Prince of Egypt, y'all seen Prince of Egypt? You can put your hand up, it's okay. So many times, so many times, poor pastor's kids. Um, you know, the, the story of him rescuing his people, realizing his, his people, the Hebrews were in slavery and his heart hurting for that and, and being used by God to get them out of slavery, parting the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, you know, the, the tabernacle, the fire in the cloud and, and all of that that happened in the wilderness. And so, you know, hitting, hitting rocks and water coming out and staffs turning to snakes and all kinds of crazy things, um, big things, big you know, Bible stories that kids' curriculums are based off of. He did great things, but he didn't start there. He started in a place like I've felt like the past few years of wrestling with, really, God, you want me to do this? Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm qualified. <laughs> and so I want to read part of Moses' story because some of us know the end, but we forget the beginning, I think. And maybe you don't, but I do. We forget that all of that greatness, all those amazing things came out of a place of insecurity, really, and doubts and questions. So let's go to Exodus chapter 3. And like I said, I promise it's going to be a good chunk of text, so hang with me, okay? We're going to go all the way into the beginning of chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15. Your Bible may start out saying Moses and the burning bush. It's that chunk. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, I just want to stop and point out here God never baits and switches. He said, I'm going to take, Mos- take you, Moses, and your people to a really good place. But here's what's waiting there. Moses knew these were opposition. God never baits and switches. He was up front with Moses right from the beginning. It's going to be good. There's amazing things there. But here's who occupies this land right now. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Uh, did I just read that? Nope. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go, so now go. 
I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what do I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me, and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And he ran from it. Then the Lord's, yeah, I know, right? Like, God, that was not a cool trick. I don't like that trick. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. What? So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, a, of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. 
Here's Moses' last objection. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Now, I know that's a lot of text, but I think we need the whole story. Because Moses finds himself in this place of being called out by the one true holy living God, And he's being called to this incredible task of not only rescuing an entire people from slavery, but speaking to the oppressor, to the king that has them in slavery. And his response is not quite favorable, is it? He has this entire dialogue with God. And I'm just picturing Moses standing there talking to a bush. Like this is kind of almost a comical situation. And he's arguing back to this bush. And there's five things that Moses objects to that I think most of us can probably relate to most if not all of them. And like I said, these are a lot of the things I feel like I wrestled through in coming to this ordination thing. Uh, My own calling, my own abilities. So the first one, we're gonna look at verse, go back to verse 311. Moses' first objection is this. Who am I? And I'm actually going to go through these pretty quickly. You don't have to worry about we're going to be here all day with these examples. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? His first objection is, I am no one special. Now, he was someone special, right? He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. And he had all, oh, the basket reached Karis. I hope you all got what you wanted. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He had power. He had, a, he had authority. He, he had the king's blessing. But when he left and he ran, he lost all of that. He was nobody now. Matter of fact, he, you know, the, the story is that he goes to this well and you know, meets all these ladies and eventually gets a wife that way. And he ends up working for his new father-in-law as a shepherd. He's gone from a prince in the house of the king working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. Now, I'm not saying anything about if you work for your father-in-law, but that probably was a bit of a demotion, you know? He, he just felt like he was an everyday guy now. He, he no longer had Pharaoh with the favor with the, the Pharaoh. He was nobody special. Talk about everybody gets to play. The reason he ran, do you guys remember why he hightailed it out of Egypt? Why did he hightail it out of Egypt? He killed an Egyptian because he got angry. Yeah, he got angry and he killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand and he was found out. And he knew he was never going to be welcomed back to that place where he had that high status. So talk about everybody gets to play. Here in this story, even the murderous fugitive gets to play. God even comes to him and uses him. And so he arrives at this burning bush, not in a place of esteem, but a place of having been humbled. Watching the sheep. He says, but God, I'm nobody special. I don't have any status. I don't have any title. And I don't know if you've ever thought of that about yourself when you're called. God, who am I? I'm nobody special. 
I don't have any titles or positions or power to be able to do anything for you. Who am I? I'm just over here doing my job, day in and day out, hanging with the stinky sheep. Y'all know how sheep smell? Bad. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> there's a story behind that. I did that to Josh one time in college. It was at the moment. It was anyway. <laughs> it's just for you, Joshy. Love you. All right. Uh, next verse. Very soon after that first excuse. <laughs> well, I just lost y'all. I lost all respect. Uh, chapter three, verse thirteen. Moses. So, so God addresses his first concern, saying, "You may be nobody special." but I'll be with you. And that's all that matters. But Moses comes back. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now, why is this a big deal? Because they didn't say his name, right? They didn't speak the name of God. It's almost like a trick question. And so Moses says, well, what if they ask me, what is his name? It's almost like, give us proof that you know him, that you talk to him. What's his name? What do I tell him then? So his next excuse is, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about you. I don't know enough about who you are. I don't even really know your name. But that's not enough. You know, again, I, I shared with you my, my own struggles about being ordained and my hesi hesitancy. And a lot of that came from the fact that, like, I wasn't seminary educated. You know, I mean, I have a college degree and I took a... I took a few religion classes to hang out with some boy that I like because he was in them too and a oh, terrible decision but uh, you know I'm, I wasn't educated in all this who am I I don't know enough I don't know enough to do this I'm not smart enough I don't I don't have that degree I don't have that name or that title but everybody gets to play y'all if it were only the pastors and the seminary educated people who were going out and doing the works and the will of God man we would have a shorthanded staff we, our bench wouldn't be nearly deep enough, right? We need everyone to play. We need everyone in the game, and there's a position for everyone to get in and engage. And it doesn't matter if you've done this, you know, for decades or you're brand new. God has a place for you in this. And fine, go learn more. You know, that's not to despise education. Go learn more. Go, go read more. That's good stuff. It, the word says we perish for lack of knowledge. Go learn more. That's great. But don't wait until you feel like you know everything to get in the game because you'll never engage. Don't wait till you think you have all the answers because you'll never start. So God, God answers that objection and he tells Moses, here's who you're going to call me. I am who I am. And that's all you need to know. The rest I've got. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Well, that's pretty straightforward, right? What if others doubt me? What if they don't believe that I've been in your presence? What if they don't believe I've heard from you? What if they don't believe what I have to say? Others might doubt me. Yup. <laughs> they might. It's not your problem. Obedience is yours to carry, not their response. 
That's not on you. Welcome to social media. Welcome to social. Oh, gosh. Maybe don't let that be your first mission field. <laughs> Go to Food Lion or something. But I think that this is a fear that grips so many of us, right? What if I put myself out there and they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that I've met with you? What if they don't believe I'm sent by you? What if they don't believe that I've heard from you? Do you know that you've heard from the Lord? The rest is not your problem. God will take care of that. It's not our job to convince them. It's God's prerogative to convict their hearts of the words and the actions and the deeds that he gives to you and to follow through on it and to see that it's from him. So don't worry about that. God does this amazing thing for Moses with this, the staff that turns into a snake and his hand that becomes leprous and is healed again. And then he says, and if that's not enough, I'll make the water you pour on the dry ground turn into blood. I've got the resources, God says, to back up my word and those I send. That's not on you. Chapter 4, verse 10. As if that blood on the ground is not enough, Moses says to the Lord, pardon me, your, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He just says, God, I'm just not good at this. I'm not good at this. I can't talk. You want me to go talk to a king? I'm not eloquent. I'm slow. I don't get my words. Gosh, I feel like that. I've been there. You know, I'm a little bit more comfortable doing this stuff now, but man, those first few sermons... Ooh, it's anxiety. I'm not good at speaking and public speaking. God, I'm not good at this. Why would you want me to go do this? I'm not trained. I'm not skilled at this. I'm not a great speaker. I'm not eloquent. You ever feel that way when God sends you to talk to someone? I'm just not good at this. I've never done this before. Well, sure, if you've never done it before, of course you're not going to be good at it. Do it more. Keep going. Do it again. Get better at it. You're probably going to suck at it at first. It's okay. Can I say suck? I'm sorry. I did it twice now. Do it again. again. (laughs) Jessica's such an antagonist. (laughs) You're not going to be good when you start. It's okay. When the power of God backs you up, you don't have to be the best speaker in the room. You don't have to be the best worship leader. You don't have to be the most convincing evangelist. Just be obedient. Just do what he called you to do. The very first time I prayed for someone, Josh and I were dating. His mom was having a yard sale. She was moving from Lilburn, Georgia to California, and she was having a yard sale getting rid of everything. I don't even know if you remember this. These two ladies come to the yard sale, and in the court, why was I helping with the yard sale? Um, But I'm there, and I'm helping with this yard sale, and these two ladies come up, and they were friends or sisters or something, but one of the ladies starts telling us about how she's got terminal cancer. There is nothing else they can do for her. She is dying. Now, I grew up in a church where we did not lay hands on people and pray for them. We, we'd say, we'll pray for you, put them on the list, and go home and forget about it, right? That's kind of how we did this. But my heart was so broken. This late, guys, this lady was dying from cancer, and she's shopping at a yard sale. I'd be in, like, Tahiti or something. But my heart just broke for her. Like, she, ha- she has no hope. God, she's dying. She knows her life is ending. And it was out of compassion that I had to do something. But I was scared. And I'd never been trained to pray for the sick before. 
And so I held back everything and I'm standing there like, God, what do I do? What do I do? And she makes it all the way to the bottom of the driveway. And I'm like, I can't let her leave. She needs to know that there's a God that heals. And so I go, I'm wearing flip-flops and I go running down the driveway with that, (laughs) you know, that the flip-flops make when you go running. And I run up behind her and I was like, if I don't just do it and get it out, I won't do it. Now, I nearly killed her there on the spot and the cancer wasn't, didn't have a chance because I scared her to death because I came running up behind her and put my hand, can I pray for you? And she's like, yeah, okay. And I think she, she's like, oh, I've been prayed for before. I'm like, well, can I do it again? Yeah. And it was one of these just power through because if I didn't power through, I wasn't going to make it through. And I laid hands on her and I prayed for her and I have no idea what it said. It probably made no sense. <laughs> But it was compassion and the Lord's stirring that was like, she needs a touch from me and you're here. And then I was so freaked out by the fact that I did that and the way that I did it and that I did it so badly. It was horrible. It was a mess. I scared her. I freaked her out. I don't know what I said. I looked like a fool and my flip flops were really loud. And it was terrible that when I got done, I ran into Josh's house up into a bedroom and laid on the floor and cried face down. For like 10 minutes and I don't remember do you remember this now you have no recollection of this okay thank God I hope your mom doesn't either one of you Josh or his mom one came up to comfort me you know how many pray times I've prayed for the sick since then <laughs> without noisy flip-flops or scaring someone to death or running in a room and crying do it and do it again And let the Lord's compassion and passion stir you to keep going until you're better at it. I trust that the Holy Spirit blessed that woman that I nearly scared to death that day because it was his compassion that stirred me. I'll never forget it. I don't know what happened to her. Maybe she died from cancer. Maybe she went back and was healed. I don't know. It was a yard sale. Remember, guys, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Put yourself out there and try it and go for it. It's the only way to get better at doing it. Do it, fail, and do it again. And fail again and do it again. And fail again and then maybe have success, success, but do it again. Don't give up. You know what it says about Moses in Acts 7? It's Moses himself here that's saying, I am, I'm not eloquent. I'm not good at this. I'm not a good speaker. I'm slow. But you know what Acts 7 says about Moses? It says he was powerful in both speech and action. Moses came out of this insecurity and was known as someone who was powerful in speech. God can do it. Don't worry about it. The thing that he was discounting himself with is the thing that he was later known for. God can do the same in us. He got good at it, and we can too. Number five, the last one. Chapter 4, verse 13. (laughs) When all else has failed. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. I just don't want to. I don't want to go. It's going to be hard. It's going to be unexpected. I have no idea what they're going to think of me. I don't want to do it. It's like you just get to the point of a temper tantrum, right? No, not me. Anybody else. Anybody else. Not me. Not it. Siberia. (sighs) anybody else God (laughs) I don't like the cold I'm a Georgia girl and he wanted to go to Siberia and I married him anyway (laughs) it's a whole story there if you haven't heard it 
And sometimes we don't. We just don't want to do it. No matter all of God's assurances, no matter all of his blessings, no matter all of his encouragements, I just don't want to do it. I've got a nice, comfy, put-together life. Don't interrupt me, God. I just don't want to. This doesn't sound like fun. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to do this. And maybe it's because we think it won't be fun, or maybe it's because we've had a bad experience before. You know, who knows? But the places in my life, guys, that I have been the most fruitful, that I have just been blessed the most and seen the most success are places where I have sensed God's call and put my hand to something or invested in something or committed to something that I didn't want to do and that I felt utterly and completely ill-equipped and unprepared for. But I just said yes, because God's like, do it. Those are the places where I have seen him show up the most in my life. It's like that song that we sing sometimes, you know, God, you call me, the, the oceans, you call me out on the waters. My feet might fail me. I might sink. But you called me there. I've got to go. One time when I was, uh, I was in eighth grade, and my parents are divorced. Many of you got to meet my parents last Sunday night. My parents are divorced, and so I'd go, and I'd spend like two weeks at my dad's house in the summer and two weeks at my mom's house. That's how my deal worked. And I cannot get this thing to stop rubbing on my face. Sorry if it's making noise. Um, and my stepmom was a little sneaky in how she would keep me busy when I was down there. Um, my dad worked a lot. He had times where he worked three jobs, and it would just be me and my stepmom for seasons. <laughs> and in eighth grade, I got down to my dad's house for my two-week rotation to find out that she had signed me up to serve in vacation Bible school with the four-year-olds without asking me. <laughs> I had feelings about that. I had lots of brothers and sisters. I did not like watching them. I did not like babysitting for them. And she just threw me in with a bunch of four-year-olds. I had strong feelings about that. And I got in there, and I'll be darned if the project they weren't doing was stamping these kids' feet in paint and stamping <laughs> them on T-shirts to make these little T-shirts with their footprints. And I guess which job I got? I was dunking four-year-olds in paint all day and wiping their feet off. I did not like this. And I was so angry and so mad about this situation, and I hated working with those kids so much, I was like, I am never doing this junk again. And I told her, I was like, don't you ever sign me up for that again. I'll stay in my room and read Nancy Drew books all day during the summer, and I'll stay out of your hair, but don't you sign me up for vacation Bible school again. And I, wouldn't, I, I was determined I was never going to work with kids again. Hated it. <laughs> right? You hear Jessica's cackle over there. When we went to the vineyard, first vineyard church we went to in Raleigh, we were newly married, early 20s. Bless her heart, Susan Venable was in charge of the nursery and came up to me and said, listen, I think you'd really be good at the nursery. Nope. <laughs> Didn't even let her finish getting the question out. Uh-uh. I don't do that. I don't work with kids. I don't like them. <laughs> no. Oh, okay then. Her husband, by the way, is one of the owners of the practice across the hall. <laughs> Funny how things come full circle. Um, but we planted this church, and God had put in my heart to plant a church. And planting a church means serving the kids and loving the kids and discipling and teaching the kids. 
and we sold an entire bedroom suit from our house to make a kids' church classroom. And I got up there with the kids, and I taught the kids. And I loved it. And I love seeing God meet me in it. He would orchestrate things in my schedule with our curriculum that I never, ever in my best type A moment could have planned out. And he met me, and he blessed me. And I've seen these kids come up through elementary and middle and high school, and, and I love it. And I love getting, I miss it when I'm not on the schedule too long. Because you guys, these are the next generation of pastors and evangelists and Jesus followers and church planters and nursery workers. And their hearts are soft, and it's the most amazing thing to get in there and work with them. And I feel blessed to get in there and, you know, when I used to keep the nursery and rock the babies till they fell asleep. And even though I couldn't teach them the words of God, they could feel the presence of God because I could love them and be present with them and pray over them and bless them as they fell asleep on my shoulder. Sometimes we just don't want to. I've got to tell you, the youth group is another one of these for me. I've got to be honest, teenagers kind of scare me. They're terrifying. Even when I was a teenager, teenagers scared me. <laughs> you know how like there's animals, like you have a bed of oysters or like a flock of seagulls or a whatever else? I'm pretty sure that it's called a terror of teenagers. <laughs> teenagers terrify me. It's okay, yeah, there's an end of the story. <laughs> did, you, did you not see the pattern from the story before? But then I had teenagers. My kids grew up into teenagers. And I got to know their friends, and they're amazing people. We planted this church, and again, some of those elementary schoolers grew up into teenagers. I'm like, I want to do stuff with these teenagers. I want to teach them and take them on fun trips and take them to summer camp and, and let them know how much God loves them and let them know that no matter what the world tells them about their identity and who they're supposed to be, God has a plan. Their creator has a plan for them of who they're supposed to be, and I want to help them find that. And all of a sudden, teenagers were no longer scary to me. They're a group to be loved and encouraged and blessed and, and set free to be who God wants them to be and not be kept in the back corner and, and whatever else. I love teenagers. I love you guys. I wish there were more of you in here right now. I love teenagers. I love being with you. It's one of the greatest blessings of my ministry to get to do youth group, to get to start that youth group to get to see you guys bring your friends, to take them to camp and see the amazing things that happen at camp. But there was a time where I sure didn't want to. God, I don't want to. I'm scared. I don't, I don't know how to do teenagers, you know? But I love these kids, and they're my favorite. And I took a picture. Um, it was either last week or the week before, and I didn't put it up here because I didn't ask your permission. But we had like four or five teenagers serving in kids' church and in nursery and doing this together. And God, you make me so proud. You make me so proud. Kids that are in our youth group, kids that I hope to take to leadership stuff one day. Because God's got a plan for them too, and I want to be a part of it. But there was a season where I was like, I don't want to. I'm talking too long. I'm sorry. This isn't in my notes. You don't have to flip here, but I'll end with this. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 8. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us 
competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, by this is what one of Moses' greatest moments, right? To go up on that mountain and bring these letters and stone back down on the tablets, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? God, God overcame all of Moses' excuses. And he can do the same with us. Two things I want you to catch in this verse. In spite of all of Moses' excuses, he came down that mountain with glory on his face because he'd met with God and everyone else could perceive it. Everyone else saw it. Paul reminds, oh, no wonder. My earpiece is back in my hair. That's why I'm having so many struggles. It left me. Paul reminds the church that it is not our own competency that does this. It's the work of the Father. Oh, that's so much better. <laughs> it's the work of the Father in us. Amen. And it would seem quite presumptuous for me to compare myself to Moses, <laughs> to this man who led the Israelites out of captivity, who spoke to Pharaoh, who did all of these amazing things, you know. But if we say yes to God, no door is closed to us. Right. You know, I, 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 can't, I can't say... Well, I'm no Moses, I'm not. That's presumptuous, but that's not the point. It's not mine to say either way. I, I can't say, well, I'm no Moses, but I also can't. Who knows? It's up for God to say. It's who he says that we are. The posture of our heart needs to be, Lord, whoever you say I am, and let him do what he wants to do. And either way, we are servants called, qualified, and equipped by the Spirit of God and nothing else. I don't get to say I am, but I don't get to say I'm not either. And neither do you. You don't get to disqualify yourself. Not when he's qualified you. So for some of you, God has been waiting a long time on you to say yes to him. He wants to release his power in your life. So my question to you this morning, I have lots of questions for you, and we're going to sit with this for a minute, but will you say yes not really knowing what's going to happen I didn't know he'd make me like teenagers I didn't know he'd make me come up with kids curriculum I didn't know he'd make me be a pastor will you say yes not knowing what's going to happen not being sure of what it is he's going to call you to do there's unknown in this not knowing if you're going to look foolish not knowing if it's going to go smoothly or not or if you're even going to succeed at all not knowing exactly what it's going to cost you. Some of you do know what he's calling you to. And you've been giving excuses. You've been listing reasons why you can't, why you shouldn't. <laughs> or just flat out, I don't want to. No. Will you say yes and will you keep saying yes when it gets hard? When it doesn't look like what you thought it would look like? Will you keep saying yes when you go way longer and spend way more time and energy with nothing happening than what you hoped? Will you stand on the promise and the truth that he called you to this? Will you keep saying yes? Will you keep saying yes when you're tired, 
Will you keep saying yes when you're frustrated? Will you keep saying yes when others doubt you? Will you keep saying yes when others don't believe you or see the calling in you? Will you keep saying yes and keep saying yes and just keep saying yes to the king himself until his kingdom breaks through for you and his promises? Saying yes to Jesus does not mean that you're saying yes by default to any certain brand of Christianity, any certain denomination, you know, any certain theology that you're wrestling with. It's simply and completely a yes to the king and the king alone. But our very first yes has to be a yes to his lordship. We can't go this extra distance without being a subject of the king. Our very first yes has to be a yes of allegiance. We spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time in our series on uh, the kingdom of God talking about how Jesus is a king. When we're talking about our salvation, about inviting someone into a relationship with Jesus, we have lots of different words and phrases and things we use for that. You know, we, we pray this prayer, whatever tradition was you grew up in, you know, you may pray this prayer with kids sometimes. We talk about becoming God's forever friend, you know, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whatever the, the phrasing and the terminology is. But what our salvation really is is a declaration of allegiance to the king. He's already king. We go from the place of saying, I'm going to be king and lord and ruler of my own life and do my own things and declaring him as not just a king, but as our king. And so it's making the decision to no longer align ourselves with the ways of the world or the ways that my own heart takes me, but his ways and his path and his kingdom. It's a declaration of allegiance to and alignment with the king and his ways. And so if you've never done that, that's first. Scripture tells us that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. So that's number one. 